prayer. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we praise you for you are good and you are stable. You are no small rock that gets blown around or washed away as the tide rises, but you are a big, sturdy, stable rock that can bear the rising tide, that can bear the swelling storm, that remains stable and steadfast, and that provides shelter and hope for us. Not only are you a sheltering rock, but you are our Redeemer. You take us, you take our sin, you give us forgiveness, you give us hope, you give us a future, and you call us your own. And so this morning I pray that our eyes would be fixed firmly on you. I pray that that would give us a deep and abiding hope that won't be shaken, that won't be moved, not because we are strong or sturdy, but because our hope is rooted in you who is strong and sturdy. So I pray that you would bless your people this morning as we reflect on you, as we think about grief, as we think about hope, as we think about worship. Um, form us into your image, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can go ahead and have a seat. Well, this summer uh, we are doing kind of a mixed bag of, of passages. We're picking some of the most influential, helpful passages uh, for us. And so this morning, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, maybe alongside uh, Romans 8, Ezekiel 37, um, and Revelation 21 are some of my favorite passages, uh, some of the most helpful ones for me. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll start in verse 13 and go through verse 18 this morning. So Paul writes the letter of Thessalonians to the church that's in Thessalonica. And this church is struggling with some present realities. They know that Jesus has died for their sins. They know that Jesus didn't stay dead, but that Jesus was raised back to life. They know that Jesus ascended into heaven, and they know that Jesus promised to return and to come again. And so they've set their hope on these things. They're looking forward to the return of Jesus, they expect it to be very soon. And they expected it to be soon because that's what Jesus told them. But something has happened. As they're awaiting the return of Jesus, some of their brothers and sisters have died. And this raises some big questions for the Christians in Thessalonica. The questions go something like this. If we're looking forward to the return of Jesus, what about those who've died? Will they miss out on the privilege, on the joy, on the hope of seeing Jesus ushered back into his dominion? Is hope gone for those people? Have they died too soon? And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul takes up that question and he tells them this. Let me read God's word over you. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Typically, I think the place that we camp on when we think about passages like 1 Thessalonians 14 is the hope that's offered there, but I want to start us in a slightly different place um, this morning. I want to start us on the grieving part at the top. Now, grief is, is a, a strange thing. Some cultures seem to be really good at grief. Like, if you look at some places, they've got rhythms, they've got rituals. When someone dies, everybody knows exactly what to do. You wear this type of clothes, maybe you don't eat for a time, you keep your head down, you put ashes on your head. You, you've got kind of rhythms and rituals that when death comes, Everybody knows what's supposed to happen, and it's supposed to last this amount of days. That is not the situation we find ourselves in. Um, our culture tends to do its best simply to avoid grief. Um, I was talking about this with a friend earlier this week, and he made a comment. He said, it's the American way. And I thought about it. And at first, that sounds uh, like a too broad of a statement. After all, there's a lot of people who live in America. And so to say anything is the American way feels like maybe that's a little bit of a difficult thing to say. But as I thought about it, I thought about different uh, cultures and places here in America. And so if you think about uh, maybe like the Hollywood feel, there's this tendency to glitz things up, to make them glamorous, to put on a pretty face and to cover up imperfections, to make things look just right. And in a culture like that, there's no room for grief, because grief is ugly. Grief is messy. Grief is the opposite of cleaned up and perfect in appearance. On the other hand, um, in maybe kind of a more rugged places in America, uh, we like to think of ourselves as strong. We get knocked down, and what do we do? Well, we get back up. We can't keep us down. We work hard, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and in a world like that, grief is seen as weakness. And in that world, there's also no room for grief, because grief is to stay down instead of to get back up. And so I think we inhabit a world here in our culture that doesn't quite know what to do with grief, and so because we don't know what to do with grief, we tend to turn away from it as quickly as we can. We are a people that are unaccustomed to death. You think about uh, where do we get our meat? Right? Just basic things. Right? We go to the grocery store, and most of us don't give more than a passing thought to that was once a living animal that was killed, that was cleaned up and chopped up, and by the time that we see it, it's clean, it's tidy, it's orderly, it's not messy. We don't see death happen around us. When people get sick... We send them to the hospital. 
as people get older, they often enter nursing homes. And so even as those around us begin to grow old or get sick and die, we tend to still be separated from death because of that. We typically take our eyes off of heavy things as quickly as we can. And so instead of having funerals, what do we do? We have celebrations of life. Because to just talk of death and sit in it is something we're really uncomfortable with. And when we're forced to, we shift quickly. So next time you go to a funeral, um, listen to what gets talked about before and after, particularly maybe if it's somebody in your family. People will say things like, it's really sad that we had to go to a funeral, but at least we got to see great aunt Sally. We can't sit on the heaviness that is death. We have to quickly pivot and find something positive. When confronted with death and grief, we find ourselves looking down or up or left or right anywhere but to look grief square in the face. And let me offer this. For those of us who know Jesus, the one who conquered death and brings life, we of all people ought to be the most able to stare death in the face. Sometimes we even do our best to convince ourselves that death is actually somehow good, that it's not so bad. We, we talk about passing on rather than dying. We say things like, well, at least he's in a better place now. Maybe you've heard people say, well, God needed that person more than you do. Or we say, there's a reason for everything. We do all of this as a way to make something heavy into something light. Shrug our shoulders. Death comes for everybody, so must not be that big of a deal. Death ushers us into Jesus' presence, so maybe it's not so bad after all. But interestingly, if you look at your Bible, that's not the way that you'll find Jesus or Paul or any of the other saints looking at death. Instead, what you'll find in places like John 11, you'll find Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus weeping. When Paul talks about death, you'll hear him personify death in a way that makes it seem almost like this wild creature. Um, he talks about it as the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. Or in, in Romans 7, he pictures it like this cruel taskmaster that we bring our sinful fruit to as, as kind of an offering. He, in, in verse 4, talks about God, and in verse 5, talks about death, almost as if these are, are two beings. Um, and so death for Paul, for Jesus, for the rest of the New Testament isn't something to shrug your shoulders at. And so when Paul says that he doesn't want those in Thessalonica to grieve as the others who have no hope, I don't think what Paul is saying is I don't want you to grieve. Right? Um, so in 2018, um, Mary and I found ourselves in an unwanted position. We had, for years, wanted to have um, a child. Mary finally got pregnant, um, and then that son we were forced to bury. 
And we found ourselves in an awkward position because we found ourselves needing to grieve but feeling really strange about what does that look like? Because in our life, grief had always been something that people did privately. And so we didn't have windows into what grief looks like. How do you grieve in a helpful way? Grief does funny things. Like the minute you think you've maybe kind of moved past it, things happen. And for no explainable reason, it just washes back over you and you find yourself grieving again. And we found ourselves surrounded by, not surprisingly, in our culture, people who also didn't quite know how to grieve. And so people would say things sometimes that ought not to be said. People would say things like, well, at least now he doesn't have to suffer in this broken world. Or, God can give you another one. And it's not surprising that in a world filled with people who don't quite know how to grieve, who don't want to grieve because grieving is hard and heavy and ugly and we, we turn away from it, that we find ourselves, when in the need of grieving, unsure what to do. And so people would give us books. And one of the things that we found with, with some of these books, with most of these books, is that they felt too tidy and cleaned up. Because grief is messy. It's complicated. It's, it's unsure. You find yourself um, moving around in different directions trying to make sense out of something that doesn't have a lot of sense to it. And so most of the books that we were given uh, are helpful on the back end, but in the midst of grief, we didn't actually find them all that helpful because we weren't in a position where they made a lot of sense. That is everything except for two different books. Um, one is, is the book of Job. If you're looking for a, a messy book in the Bible, Job is, is your friend. Um, Job has some good friends who show up and do the right thing for a little while, and then they grow weary of listening to Job and they open their mouths and things go bad. But one of the things that you notice in Job is he's just constantly moving back and forth trying to figure out how to make sense of what doesn't make sense. And in the midst of his search, he doesn't find God, but God finds him. And we found Job to be a helpful place. The other uh, book that we found helpful was C.S. Lewis put together a little book. It wasn't actually intended to be a book, but it's called A Grief Observed. It's a collection of journal entries that he wrote after the death of his wife, and it's messy. He says something on one page, the next page he'll say, actually, that's not actually true. And that's how grief works, is it not? You're searching and seeking and trying to make sense of what's going on around you, and you find yourself saying one thing, only when maybe you see a little more clearly, you find out, oh, actually, that's, that's not the way that works. And in that messiness, in that search, we found um, some hope. And so our world, when, when we talk about hope, I think often the hope that's offered is a sham of a hope. It's a hope that turns away from grief and pain, that closes its eyes, that plugs its ears, It's a hope that just imagines if we act like things are normal, then they'll become normal, almost kind of a speak it into existence. And I think this is often true, actually, within the church as well. If you think about the way that we tend to grieve, I think we grieve in a similar way often. But the hope of Jesus is different. The hope of Jesus has the power to look death in the face and look pain in the face and sorrow in the face and see through it. 
Because here's what's true. Jesus doesn't offer an escape from death. You know this? Jesus offers a pathway through death. And on the other side of death, surprise, surprise, what do we find but life? Those of you who are Christians, you know this to be true because that's what you declared in your baptism. In your baptism, you died to your old self, and in dying, what do you find? You find life in Jesus. And when we face grief, the solution isn't to run from grief, to hide from grief, to cover our ears and cover our eyes and look a different direction. The pathway is through the midst of it, because Jesus has gone through the midst of it, and if we were to go with Jesus, it involves going through death, and on the other side, we find life. And so I want you to notice the hope that Paul offers in 1 Thessalonians 4, and then we'll circle back around to uh, a different kind of grief than what we've just talked about. So Paul says that those who've died in verse 13, he doesn't call them dead. You'll notice this. He calls them what? Asleep. He says the same thing in verse 14. He calls them asleep. And in verse 15, again, he calls them asleep. You'll notice throughout the New Testament, it is common for New Testament authors to call dead saints sleeping. And so in, in Matthew 27, 52, as Jesus dies, I think we have this verse, we can put it on the screen so you can see it. When Jesus dies, uh, people get resurrected. It's a crazy thing that happens. Um, but Matthew says that the saints who were raised were those who'd fallen asleep. Uh, if you look a little bit later in, in John chapter 11, we've got Lazarus here. And Jesus says that Lazarus has done what? fallen asleep. And in Acts 7, 60, Stephen is stoned, he's put to death, except in his put to deathness, he's actually, he falls asleep. Um, we can keep going through more verses where you'll see the same thing teased out. So when the New Testament talks about Christians who've died, it typically uses language of asleep, whereas when non-Christians die, the language that's used is they breathed out or they expired. So if you, uh, if you just want to jot these down, Acts 5.5, 5, 5.10, um, you, you can actually, this one's up on the screen. Um, Ananias hears the words that Peter speaks to him, and he does what? He breathes his last. You see his wife do the same thing in verse 10. Um, Herod in Acts 12, he dies, he breathes his last. Um, for the early church, for Christians, the experience of those who die in Christ and are awaiting resurrection and those who die apart from Christ, those experiences are so different that they use different words. So I would ask you, as you think about death, does that ring true for you? And so Paul says, those who've died, we don't want to be uninformed about them because we don't want to grieve as those who have no hope. And so Paul says, they're asleep. And he says, if Jesus has been raised, he said, the dead in Christ will also, also be bodily resurrected. And so here's some good news for aching souls. Death does not get the last word. 
right? In Jesus, death is not a period. There's a comma after that, and then Jesus undoes death. And so those who've died, Paul says, contrary to what the Thessalonians are concerned about, they've not actually missed out on the return of Jesus because Jesus raises his saints back to life. So look at verses 15 to 17. Paul says, we, the ones who are alive, when Jesus comes back, we won't be the first to go to Jesus. In fact, what he says, verse 16, the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together in the air. So have this picture in your mind. Paul says, these dead saints haven't actually missed out on the return of Jesus because when Jesus returns, their bodies will be raised back to life and they will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord and we will be as well. Now, sometimes people have, have read this verse and thought caught up in the air, this is some type of like rapture away from everything. But what's interesting, if you look at the word meet, the place that usually shows up is in royal places and weddings. And so, uh, let me just give you a couple examples to help us sort of frame what's going on here. Uh, Josephus writes about um, a Caesar named Titus. And when Titus is coming into Antioch, Josephus tells us that the important people of the city go out to meet him. And why do they go out to meet him? They go out to meet him because they're excited that he showed up to their town and they're going to usher him into their town. Jesus tells a parable in, in Matthew 27 um, about a bridegroom coming. And what happens to this bridegroom when people hear that he's coming? They all rush out, they go to meet him and join him as he's coming in. Uh, Acts tells us a story about Paul. He's on the way to Rome. This is at the very end of the book of Acts. Um, he's going to Rome as a prisoner. And when the saints in Rome hear that Paul is on the way, they show up and they do for Paul exactly what the people did for Caesar. They show up. Uh, this would have been shocking to the Romans. They show up. They're excited that, Rome, that Paul is coming to their town and they meet Paul and they usher him into their town. So think like triumphal entry. The picture that Paul has in mind here is that Jesus is coming to earth to claim his dominion, and those who belong to him rise up, join him, and bring him into his kingdom. Paul says this is what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And so if you've died, if those that you've loved have died, they don't actually miss out on the return of Jesus. Death does not keep you from participating in Jesus' return. Now, we live in a strange place. Jesus has already died, he's already ascended, and we're waiting on him to return. And in this in-between time, people we love die. And so what does it look like for us to grieve as people who have hope. Well, I've got three things that I think will be helpful for us. So if you're taking notes, um, this is where we'll end on these three things. The first thing that those who have hope need to have to grieve is that we bear witness that death is ugly. 
Death is a reminder that everything's not right. There's no need for us to pretend that things are okay. Death is an assault on God's good desire. Yes, it's true that God in His greatness takes death, turns it inside out, and ends up working good from what's bad. But because God does that, that doesn't make death good. That's more a statement on God's unconquerable power than it is that death is somehow good. Death is ugly. Death is an enemy. It's a reminder of the destruction that sin causes. At best, what we do with death is we taunt it. Like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, oh, death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? Death looks like a mighty and strong powerful enemy, but in Christ's death and resurrection, it's actually a defeated enemy. And so at our best, what we can do is taunt death, but what we cannot do with death is shrug our shoulders and act like it's not a big deal. We can't turn away quickly and hide from it. Sorrow and sadness and mourning are right, and they are good. Because when you are sad, when you're grieving, you're confessing alongside God that death is evil. So we should be a people who do things that bear witness that death is ugly. So when someone you love dies, and you feel like wearing dark clothes, let me encourage you. Feel free. Death is ugly. We should picture it as ugly. If you feel overcome with tears, cry. Death is ugly. We should bear witness that it's ugly. If you feel the need to cry out to God in in confused cries that are seeking to make sense of a strange thing that's happened, Follow Job and do it because God, like he did for Job, will meet you there. Death is ugly. The job of the Christian is to bear witness that death is, in fact, ugly. And the hope that we have in Jesus gives us the freedom to look death in the face and not look away. Hope frees us from being trapped in Grief. Maybe you've known people like this. Who they walk down the road of grief, and because they have no hope, find themselves trapped in grief with no way to escape. Hope gives us what we need to be able to look death in the face, to call it ugly, to bear witness that it is ugly, and to not be trapped by it. So the first thing that we do is we bear witness that death is ugly. The second thing that we do is we remember that death is already defeated and will one day be undone. It's already defeated, and one day death will be undone. So, uh, church, hear this. The defeat of death, right? That happened on the cross and Jesus' resurrection. Death was defeated. That does not yet mean the end of death, right? We know this. The defeat of death and the end of death aren't simultaneous. On April 9, 1865, so a few years ago, 
um, generally surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse. And that marked the end of the Civil War, the defeat of the Confederacy. But that didn't mark the end of killing. In fact, five days later, Abraham Lincoln would be assassinated. And for some time on after that, people would continue to die. Why? Well, for some people, it took some time for that message to get to them, and they didn't know that the war was actually over, and so they would continue to fight. For others, they didn't actually uh, care, and they still believed in the cause that they were uh, supporting, and so they continued to fight. The end of the war and the end of killing weren't actually the same thing. And so similarly for us, death is defeated, but the end is not so we do well to remember that death is already defeated, but one day it will be undone. And here's something for you. The hope that we have as Christians is far greater than the hope that the Union had. See, our hope isn't just the end of the war, but our hope is the actual undoing of death. That's, by the way, if you haven't thought about it, that's what resurrection is. Resurrection is dead people coming back to life. Our hope is that death itself will one day be undone. Maybe you, some of you are familiar with uh, Samwise Gamgee's question to Gandalf. If everything sad will one day come untrue? And in Jesus, the answer to that is absolutely. The dead will be raised back to life. Not only will death be defeated, death itself will be undone. We bear witness that death is ugly. We remember that death is defeated and know that one day it will be undone. And then the last thing is that we anticipate Jesus' reign. And so that's the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 that Paul uh, points our eyes to. He says, I want you to grieve as those who have hope. And then what is the hope that he points them to? One day Jesus is coming back. And here's where all of this comes full circle for, for us. Where I'm convinced uh, we often miss it. If we are to anticipate Jesus' return, that means we have to oppose his enemies. And when we shrug our shoulders at death, when we go, well, it happens to everybody, so it must not be that big of a deal. When we shrug our shoulders and go, well, I guess at least it, uh, we can find some positive in it. it ends my suffering, or it ushers me into the presence of Jesus. When we say things like this as a way of trying to relieve ourselves from the heaviness that is death, when we say these things as a way to not look pain in the face, when we do things like this, um, when we refuse to grieve deeply, what we're actually doing is colluding with death. Have you thought about that? I want you to imagine during King David's reign, you lived in Jerusalem. And during his reign, uh, a lot of things happened, but one thing that happened is his son Absalom revolted against him. And so Absalom comes into the city, takes it over, um, sits on the throne. David has to flee outside of the city, and Absalom is sitting on the king. And you find yourself in Jerusalem. You would call yourself loyal to King David. And you're now in an awkward position. You're in Jerusalem. 
David's son is on the throne, and he's claiming to be king. David's in exile. Things seem a bit murky. And you've got a couple options before you. One of the options that you have before you is to try to spin this in kind of a positive way so that you can live peaceably in the midst of it. And so maybe you find yourself saying, well, at least it's somebody from David's line who's on the throne. At least it's not somebody from uh, somewhere else. At least it's somebody who claims to worship our God. It's not somebody who worships some different God. Well, David then rallies his people, comes back in, and takes back over his kingdom. He sits back down on his throne. Now, if you found yourself there, before David was chased out, you found yourself loyal to David. And when David returns, you find yourself loyal to David. If in that middle time you found yourself trying to make peace with what was, trying to find a silver lining and move on as if things were actually not so bad and just okay, no matter what you say with your mouth, what you've actually done is you've thrown your lot in with Absalom. You've colluded. You've not been anticipating the return of David you've found yourself trying to make peace with what's presently going on around you. Similarly, I think, for us, when we think about death, to shrug our shoulders at death, to make peace with death because it just happens all the time, is to not anticipate the return of Jesus. On the other hand, to call death ugly, to grieve deeply when death claims another is to bear witness that your allegiance is with the king. And so here's real practically what that means. If calling death ugly, if grieving death is anticipating the king coming, then that means grief is actually worship. Right? It's not just that, that grief is, is something we do along the way, but grief in this sense is actually how we can worship because it's in grief that we mourn death, that we call it ugly, and that we anticipate Jesus setting it right. Grief is actually, when it's done with hope, as Paul says, grief in that moment is actually worship. Some people around us, find it really easy to grieve because they have no hope. Right? You've seen people like this. Paul warns against this. They look around and everything seems so bad. They have no hope. They just grieve. They find themselves sad all the time. They're trapped in this labyrinth of grief and there's no pathway out. That, that's some people. Others find it really difficult to grieve because they've found themselves pretending that death isn't actually so bad after all. Right? These people don't love death, but they've made peace with death because it's all around them. I'm fearful that this is actually where a lot of Christians land, where we think of death as like, oh, okay, well, it happens. It's not so bad. But Paul invites us to a different way. Paul invites us not to grieve with no hope, and Paul invites us not to not grieve. Paul invites us to grieve as those who have hope. This means 
that we have the freedom to grieve deeply without our grief turning in on itself and trapping us. Because our grief is directed at Jesus, who went through death, burst out the other side, and found life for us. We can, with the freedom to grieve without being trapped, and we have the responsibility to grieve deeply because we anticipate the return of the Lord of life. And so what we find is our grief, when done with hope, is actually in itself worship. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we cry out to you.